Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari and this is the Great Big History Podcast. In this episode, we're doing a bunch. We're doing warfare in the Bronze Age, the Bronze Age Collapse, and the Assyrian Empire. So warfare in the Bronze Age has a revolution in it, and it's the Chariot Revolution. It's around 2000 or so BCE. Before the Chariot Revolution, armies were infantry armies, men with swords or spears, mostly spears, uh, carrying a shield, walking from place to place. The Chariot Revolution completely changed warfare and changed society. Why? Because it is the first super weapon in human history. It is a weapon that is so powerful, other weapon systems don't matter. And you can see this if you read your Old Testament. You could watch the change happen. Whereas early armies are how many men Joshua has. How many soldiers early Israelite kings have. And then there's a change to like Ahab has 300 chariots. And they don't even mention the amount of men they have. Because those men don't matter. Chariots matter. It's kind of like aircraft carriers today. No one cares how, how many little boats you have. How many aircraft carriers do you have? Now, you could see why it's this expensive super weapon. And that's the first thing. It is massively expensive. Why? Because it requires three parts to it. And that's what makes it a super weapon. The first is the chariot itself. So you need, it needs to be Strong enough to carry people, but light enough that it can be picked up. This is the bronze chariot. So you have to have enough metallurgy. You have to have furnaces that could get hot enough to melt the metals and then mix them together. You need to have the wheel technology. Which not everybody has because people who live on rivers don't need wheels. You have to live on flat earth. A place where you can build roads, something flat that the, that the wheels can go on. You need to have the chariot, you need to have the metallurgy, right? You need to have the molding to be able to pour the metal in and to make the chariot frame itself. The second thing, and the more expensive part, is the horses. Remember, Mesopotamian people, settled peoples, lost their ability to raise horses, so they have to reinvent that ability. What does that mean? They need large acreage of flat grass land. What does that mean? Well, in a river valley, there isn't large acreage of flat grass land. It's mud. It's muck. It's weeds. It's flooded areas. So you have to plant grass. You have to plow out whatever else is there. And you can't use that land for human food, i.e. to make money, i.e. for people to live on. It has to just go to grass, just for horses to gnaw on. So you need a, so who, who can own that amount of flat land that they could turn into grassland and then just leave empty for horses? Only super rich people. So horses become, 
Whereas in nomadic peoples, the horse is the mode of transportation. For settled peoples, the horse is an expensive mode of transportation and an even more expensive form of warfare. It separates the rich from the poor. Poor people do not own horses because they don't have the land to raise them. And again, you go, whoa, whoa, you just, you use these horses for plowing, right? No, this is a war horse. This is a horse that's going to be trained to carry a chariot, not a plow. That's a completely different job. You don't put a thoroughbred racing horse on your farm. That's a waste of that horse. They're two different jobs. They use two different muscles. They use two different skill sets. It's a physically different horse that does that job. And so the horses are immensely expensive. And then third, you need to have a driver and a bowman, someone who shoots the archery, right? Because one person cannot do both. You can't drive with one hand. You're two horses. And shoot a bow. You need both hands to shoot the bow. So you need someone else to drive the horses, right? Both of those people have to be trained. Both of those people can't be farmers. Both of those people can't be craftsmen. They can't work. They have to be trained to drive horses or to shoot bows at 20 miles an hour and hit something. So everything about the chariot is expensive. So only rich people matter in these societies because only rich people can afford it. So all of a sudden, rich people who were just rich, they just owned more land, are now the most important people in the society because they make up the most important part of the army. And this is where we get to the Code of Hammurabi, right? Notice Hammurabi is in 1750 BCE. He is after 2000 BCE. So he, his armies are going to be chariot armies. So of course, rich people are treated better in the Code of Hammurabi. He needs them more. He, he needs them more in the army to be good, to be well-trained, to be in the army. Then he needs citizens, men carrying a, a spear, much less slaves, which you would never arm. You never arm slaves. Why? Because the first thing a slave is going to do is stab you, stab the owner. When you hear, whether it's the Confederacy, right, or, or um, other societies that they start arming slaves, you know it's like zero hour. It is the end. It is the last thing. It is when all else is lost. Well, we'll start arming slaves and promising them freedom. Because that's the whole point of the war that you're fighting is to hold on to those slaves, their property, their work, their money. You spent your entire civilization violently putting those people down and now you're going to give them a weapon and trust them to fight on your side dude your your war is over this is a last ditch effort you know they're going to be freed anyway so you might as well try so only the rich people matter in chariot societies and it is much more powerful than people if you were on a battlefield with a shield and a spear and your two legs are on the ground facing chariots, 
you are in a lot of trouble. You have about a 20-minute life expectancy because those chariots are going to fly around you, shoot you in the face, or they're going to fly around you. Everyone's going to panic. You're going to run away. They're going to shoot you in the back. They are not tanks. This is important to understand. They do not come rolling in. There's all the, the you may see them in the movies, the scythe. They have the swords on the wheels. Those were just decorative. They never worked. They kn- you cannot run a chariot into people. And I know if you're watching the video, there's an art of a guy being run over, but that's bad. That's a representation that's not, that's showing that the chariot is more powerful than the, the infantrymen. Because you don't want, horses don't want to run over people. They might break a leg. And if they break a leg, they ain't getting up. So they don't want to run over people. A chariot can't get stuck. If it gets stopped, you stab the people, you stab the horses. Suddenly now you just have a rich schmo on a big gilded stage. You could kill him. So chariots are like jet fighters. They must keep moving. They must always move forward. They come in at 20, 25 miles an hour. They hit hard and they leave. And then they come back and they hit again. And they come back and they leave and they come back. They don't stand and slug it out. They don't stand like a tank and stop and then fight. That's not how a chariot works. A chariot is made to make you run away. This creates a new legitimacy. In Mesopotamia, In China, you either have chariots or you have nothing. You want to matter, you must build chariots. And remember, take that now back up. Only the rich matter. So if only the rich people matter in your society, what if you don't have all that many rich people? What if you're a poor society? Well, then you don't have many chariots. And so what happens? You get defeated by a richer society with more rich people. And so what happens is you get a big three balance of power in the Middle East, and that big three is still there. It's still how the Middle East, Southwest Asia is divided. And that is Babylon, Mesopotamia, modern Iraq, Egypt, and the Hittites. Now, the Hittites are Asia Minor, Egypt is the Nile, and Babylon is Mesopotamia. Now, some of you will go, well, what about Iran? Well, one, Iran isn't important at this point in history. The, the I- Persians haven't shown up yet. Um, even the Iranians, the, who give them the Aryans, haven't shown up yet. But what's important to understand in modern history is when Iraq is powerful, when Babylon is powerful, Iran is weak. The, pl- the, plateau, the Iranian plateau is usually weak. They balance each other out. But, and you've probably seen this, you're living in the 21st century, you've seen this, especially since the 1991, when Iraq is weak, when Babylon is weak, when Mesopotamia is weak, Iran is strong. The plateau of Iran is strong. And so the, the U.S. war in Iraq in 2003 made Iran strong. The biggest winner in the Iran, in the Iraq U.S. war of 2003 was Iran. And that's historical. Every time Mesopotamia is weak, Iran is strong. And every time Iran is weak, Mesopotamia, Babylon is strong. 
So what do we get? We get Babylon, this cosmopolitan city. It's making its money. It's based on trade goods. It's got money, so it could buy resources. It's also got the technology. It's got the smart people. Remember, it's the most advanced place. Egypt has the Nile, and the Nile creates more agriculture than anywhere else in the world. Egypt is the richest place in the world. Babylon's the most advanced. Egypt is the richest. So they have money. So they can buy the stuff they need, the resources, the metals, right? The smart people. The Hittites, though, which is modern Turkey, they're the kind of ancestors for modern Turkey. They're not Turks. They're not, but it's the area where modern Turkey is today. They're in the Asia Minor mountains. So you go, wait a minute, Professor. They're in mountains. They're mountain people. They're hillbillies. Yes. They are less sophisticated. They have less money than Babylon, than the Nile, than Egypt. But they live in the mountains. They live on top of the minerals that Babylon and Egypt need, which means you take, they take out the minerals first for them, use what they need first, and then export the minerals to the other peoples. So th their chariots cost half, cost a third of what Babylon's or Egypt's cost. So the Hittites, because of where they live, have a lower cost to compete. They can build the same amount of chariots as Babylon at half the cost. So they're able to keep up because it's cheaper for them to do so. It's kind of like the price of gas in Saudi Arabia. It's like 50 cents. Why? Because Saudi Arabia pumps the oil out of the earth that it needs first, that it needs to refine for itself first. And then it exports the extra. So... Of course it's going to be cheap. It's their oil. And they're going to jack up the price of the exports to subsidize their oil. It's exactly how you would expect it to work. So you get Babylon, the, the smartest place, the most advanced place, has the biggest, has the biggest uh, chariot army. The Egyptians, they have the Nile, they have agriculture. They're the richest society on earth. So they can buy as many chariots as they need. And the Hittites, balancing between the two in Asia Minor, in Turkey, in the north, north of Egypt, north of Babylon, has cheap metals, and so that allows them to compete. But everybody else loses. The Phoenicians, the Israelites, the people of Elam, which is one day going to be turned into Persia, they all lose. They can't compete. Everything changes with the Bronze Age collapse. The Bronze Age collapse is the first apocalypse. Now, we've lived, we're in like the Third Age. If you're a Tolkien fan, you kind of know this. Um, but we're in the Third Age. The world has ended, ladies and gentlemen. You're living in the Third Period, possibly the Fourth Period, depending on how you want to define the world wars. The world ended. Every major civilization during the Bronze Age, China, India, Mesopotamia, Egypt, all collapsed. It is a trauma for everybody who lived through it. 
and for the people who didn't. It was a trauma for the people who lived through it, witnessing the people who didn't live through it. Every major civilization is wrecked, from Greece all the way to China. It is the story of the Exodus. The Hebrews get on the move while natural disasters are happening. That's the Bronze Age collapse. That's what they're remembering. Now, Exodus is written not at the time. Exodus is written 500 years later. But it's remembering that period, remembering those stories. So something climate changed. It has been my argument for 20 years that something in the environment happened. Why? Because nomads get on the move. And nomads only get on the move when they need food. And they bumped into other nomads. So something in the climate changed that made food in Central Asia hard to come by. And so those nomads get on the move. They bump into other nomads. Those nomads get pushed into settle zones. They're looking for food. Those settle zones get crushed and get moved. And get, this is what happens in Greece. Every major city, every city, I shouldn't even say major, every city in Greece except for Athens is burned. And the Athenians will say, that makes us special. And everyone else will say, you were so poor, there wasn't anything even there. But every major civilization is destroyed. It is the end of the world. It is a dark age. This is like the 400s with the fall of Rome, the fall of the Han, and the fall of the Mauryans. In the 300s and the 400s AD. Where every major civilization, again, ended at around the same time. And... In Greece, you got a dark age. You got an age that was so dark, they forgot how to read and write. We have two forms of ancient Greek. One, we can read ancient Greek, what's called linear B, but there's linear A. We can't read it. We couldn't read it. Ancient Greeks couldn't read it. It was a pre-Greek language that they had to reinvent because that's how traumatic the Bronze Age collapse was. The first winner of who's going to be able to pick up the pieces from the Bronze Age collapse will be Assyria. Babylon will eventually come back. Egypt will eventually come back. But it is the Assyrians who will figure out how to come back first and how to come back most viciously. They will respond to the trauma. Now, who are the Assyrians? They live in the upper frontier, the upper Tigris, the literal middle of nowhere. In, in Mesopotamia. They are at the end of the world. They're looking at the Hittites to the north on the other side of the mountains. And the Bronze Age collapse was a trauma because invaders didn't settle in Assyria. There was nothing worth worthwhile there. They were on their way to Babylon. And so they just wrecked the world. They took, stole all the pigs, ate all the goats, took all the horses. They, they just ransacked everything like locusts on their way to Babylon, that everyone said, oh, that's the rich place, that's going to definitely have more food. So, they're not, they're wrecked. Their houses are burned down, their farms are burned down, they're, they're, all their food is stolen, right? And so this is a trauma. So, what do they resolve to do? They resolve to never let this happen again. This is very common, when you suffer a trauma. You ask, why did it happen? And how do I prevent it from ever happening again? And their answer was to create an army that cannot lose. 
to never allow Assyria to be invaded again. Well, how do you create a society that cannot lose? You have to create you have to create how do you create an army that cannot lose you have to create a society that can create an army that cannot lose so they militarize the society this is our first settled society where every male is a soldier where the entire society is militarized every energy every penny every drop of blood is going to be put into making a better soldier and we'll see this in other places we'll see this in the spartans We'll see this in the Nazis. Now, the Nazis aren't quite, they militarize their society, but not the entire society. And you may make the argument that that's one reason they lost. Um, they don't go the whole, I don't know. Right? When it comes to Nazis, it, they're very hard to explain because they're effing Nazis. But what does this militarized society create? It creates a national army. Only Assyrians can be in it. Nobody else. Only Assyrians. And that allows for an efficiency. They have the same language, the same culture, the same training, the same thoughts of, of mind, the same value system. They can work together. They can trust each other. And anyone who's ever been in the military will tell you the most important aspect is trust. The idea that the person next to you will fight for you. The idea that the other regiment will come and help you if you ask. That trust. And you can trust other Assyrians in a national army. But that also means nobody else can join. No mercenaries. No foreigners. No conquered people. Nobody. It is Assyrians or nobody. It allows for efficiency, but it doesn't allow for a massive army. So it's a very efficient but typically sized army, about 30,000, 40,000 people. Now, the amount of men who could be in the army is much bigger, but you can't feed all those people at one time. So when the, when the Assyrian army gets on the move, it's about 30 to 40,000, which is about the limits that you can feed until the Persians come along, and we'll talk about that when we get there. What is the advantage of this militarized society? What is the advantage of this professional army? Combined arms, a way of fighting nobody else can do. Combined arms is when all your military types, your archers, your chariots, your infantry, all work together simultaneously. See, because they all have problems. They all have disadvantages. Everything in this class is a disadvantage and an advantage, right? And so your archers have an advantage. They can attack someone far away. Their disadvantage is... They can't fight up close. They can't stand and stab anybody. Chariots, advantages, they move very fast. Disadvantage, they can't stop. Infantry, they move slow. They're, they're vulnerable to archers, but they can kill up close. They can kill and not be moved. They can stand shoulder to shoulder and form a wall. But that means they're slow. And so what combined arms does, and is, this is a modern way of fighting, this is how our army fights today, is to combine the advantages in, in order to offset the disadvantages. But to do that, all of your pieces have to know what to do. They all have to work together like a puzzle piece 
while the battle is going on, they all have to know their jobs so well that they don't even have to communicate with each other. No one else can do this in the ancient world. Nobody. Absolutely nobody. And so it gives them victory. Or worse. Worse for those who are defeated. In Israel, the kingdom of Israel in 725 BCE is a genocide. Sargon II comes in and obliterates Israel. Notice his name, Sargon II. He's not Akkadian. He is a Syrian. But he took the name Sargon so that people would be scared. We'll come back to this. He was clearly referencing the elder Sargon, who he is not related to. From a thousand years earlier, 2,000, uh, 1,500 years earlier. But he wants to use a name that would scare people, that people would go, oh my God, he's the second coming of Sargon, who conquered the world. In Judah, another Hebrew Jewish kingdom, in 707, and at Babylon in 689 BCE, Sennacherib lay siege and forces the Judeans to make peace, threatening to the, obliterate them. Like, the Judeans came within a battle of being wiped out. Hebrew slash future Jewish people almost got completely wiped out between 725 and 707 by the Assyrians and ceased to exist. We'll talk about this when we do the Hebrews, but this is a hugely traumatic episode. And then he sacked Babylon, the richest city in the world, the most advanced city in the world. He defeated it in battle and then sacked the city, stole its wealth. That says to every other people, oh my God, what this guy can defeat the richest place on earth, the richest city in the world, the most advanced city on earth. He's got to be powerful. So the results is a total destruction of the enemy. The goal of the Assyrians is not to win a battle. It is to crush the will to fight. And to maintain that is to use terrorism. The wanton use of violence meant to scare people into submission. That's not war. That's not murder. That's not... Terrorism is a form of violence that is meant to scare people it's 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 wanton it's there's no purpose to it other than make other people afraid and this is totally new nobody fought like this nobody could fight like this it was never the goal of anybody to terrorize people and we're going to talk about that in a little while to scare them into submission you wanted their land or you wanted their money so you wanted to defeat them and then make a peace treaty or defeat them and move them. So you got their land. Like, that sucks for them, but hey, your farmers needed the land. But you didn't wipe out people. You didn't obliterate them. You didn't rip up their civilization by the roots. That's what the Assyrians did. The Assyrians knocked you down in the fight, then kicked you while you were down on the ground until they kicked all your teeth in, and then they lit you on fire and pointed to all the spectators, look at what I did to this guy. I'll do it to you next. Who wants one? Who wants some? That's the Assyrians. So what's the problem with this? Well, slavery. Remember we went back to 
they created a militarized society. Well, how do they feed themselves? Where do they get food from? If every man is a soldier, they're not farmers. Well, you have to have slaves. So from the very beginning, the Assyrians are conquering people and forcing them to work for Assyria. You force foreign peoples to labor so the Assyrians can be in the army. Again, this is Sparta, the American Confederacy, the Nazis. And this is a problem for the Assyrians because people hate being slaves. And they want to destroy their slavers. They don't want to be slaves. No one wants to be a slave. They want to work for themselves. Or at least their society. They don't want to be forced to make somebody else rich. But the Assyrian system of having a militarized society, like the Spartans, like the American Confederacy, like the Nazis, forced them to own slaves. Now, I'm not saying they didn't like owning slaves. It helped show their legitimacy. But it meant they couldn't do any other system. They couldn't have a system where they paid people. They had to enslave them, which made the slaves hate them. And second is terrorism. We will double down. People hate you. Hate you. Your legitimacy is only goes only as far as your violence can take you. Any weakness equals a massive revolt. The moment someone thinks they can defeat you, everyone gangs up on you. And so what did they do? They obliterated cities. If you're looking at the video, they're carting off gods. Now, we see a big Babylonian statue. We've seen all these slaves cart off these gods as an image. But if you look to your right, where my arrow points, that's in the Louvre. That is that Babylonian god in the Louvre, in France. So in a couple thousand years, the French will go to the Middle East and kidnap the gods of the Babylonians and put it in their museums. And don't think the people of Iraq aren't upset about that and weren't upset about that at the time. They're like, wait a minute, this is ours. These are our gods. This is our history. And the French are like, yeah, we're taking it. We're going to put it in our museum so our people can look at it. But you weren't even here. Well, tough. We have the power. And that's France in 1900. Just like Assyria in 1700 B.C. So how do the Assyrians show their legitimacy? Through military victory, which we've talked about, right? Um, Israel, Judea, Babylon, lots of other places. But also they build things. Nineveh and the Great Library. And Nineveh and the Great Library is proof of Assyrian power and also trauma for the defeated people. Why do they build Nineveh? Why do they build the Great Library? And how are either of these terrorism? Well, you build Nineveh because you have to compete with Babylon. Remember who the Assyrians are. They are poor people who live at the edge of the world. Babylon is the coolest city in the world. So even if the Assyrians win, people go, okay, but do you have a city like Babylon? And the Assyrians go, no, but we're tough. And they go, yeah, whatever. Come back to us when you build Babylon. Like, it's, it's, humili- it's, it's a humiliation for the Assyrians that they have a great army, but they're not considered a great people. They're tough, but not great. 
And so to compete with Babylon, to show they're better than the Babylonians, they build a capital city called Nineveh. And everybody will do this. The, the Hebrews will build Jerusalem. right? The Phoenicians will build Sidon and Tyre. The only people who don't build a great city is Egypt. Why? Because they have the Nile. They don't need a great city. They've got the Nile. They're like, yo, dude, you have a Nile? Then we could talk. We got the Nile. So I don't need a city. Right? You're always looking for bragging rights. And in Mesopotamia, the size of your city was your bragging rights. Your size matters. Don't let anyone ever tell you size doesn't matter. And we'll come back to this over and over again because size matters. You are treated with respect because of the size of your thingy, whatever that thingy may be. You are taken seriously. You are able to compare. In Mesopotamia, that was the size of your city. In Egypt, it will be the size of your pyramid. So they need to build Nineveh. So what do they do? They use slave labor to build it. Because it's forcing people to do something for the Assyrians. It shows Assyrian power. right? It's reinforcing that idea. It's also a humiliation of defeated peoples. Look at what I can make you do. I can make you build a great city for me. Remember, the army is national. Nineveh is a national capital. Nobody else gets to live there. Nobody else gets to use it. It's just for Assyrians. It's like what Hitler wanted to do with Berlin if he ever won the war. If you type in Hitler, Hitler's Berlin plans, you know, he wanted to recreate Berlin as a giant kind of new Rome, neo-roaming classical architecture that would be just for Germans. It wasn't going to be an international city. It was going to be a Nazi city to show off Nazism. So that's Nineveh. What about a great library? How is a great library terrorist? Well, because of who the Assyrians are and what's in the great library. The Assyrians aren't great readers. The Assyrians are not great scholars and writers and researchers. They're military guys. They're soldiers. So what books are in the great library? Everybody else's books. Books that are stolen. Like the artwork that the Nazis stole. The Assyrians will steal all of the, all of the books, all of the tablets, especially stuff from people's gods. Because if you can steal the gods, how powerful are those gods if they let you steal their stuff? They can't be very powerful. So if I'm stealing the stuff of Babylonian gods, if I'm stealing the books of Babylonian gods, the Babylonian gods can't stop us. They must be weak gods, which means they're loser gods. And does anyone want to worship loser gods? And so the great library is stored with stolen books. And the stuff that the Assyrians will add to it is stuff about the chronicles of the treatment of defeated peoples. It's books about how I defeated Babylon, how I defeated the Hebrews, how I defeated Egypt. It's chronicles of the military victories and the terrorism that the Assyrians did to other people. So the books in the Great Library are all about defeat. Now think about how a library works. You have to ask permission to read the books. And you go, wait a minute, professor. I don't ask permission. Oh, you don't? You want to? You go to the library. You want to take out a library book. Do you just pull it off the shelf and walk out? No. You go to the front desk and you hand the book to the, to the nice young person. 
Now, what the, now you may not say the words, but you are asking permission to take that book. If you've ever been a kid, if you ever if your library ever has an adult section separated from a child section, my hometown library did this. They had two different sections. If you were a kid and you went in and you got like the Daniel Steele book or the uh, Stephen King book or, you know, a um, how to do naked stuff book, because libraries in the 70s and the 80s had like the joy of sex and things. And you picked that off the thing and you went, oh, look at these pictures. And you went up to the front desk and said, can I please have this? The nice lady at the front, and in my day it was all nice ladies, they take it and go, no, you can't have this. You can't have Stephen King. You can't have The Joy of Sex. You can't have Danielle Steele. What are you doing? Why are you even in this section? This is the adult section. Who? Where's your mother? And you'll be like, well, my mom's like somewhere. I don't know. And it was became a thing. They deny you permission. Well, this happens at the Great Library. You go to the Assyrians and say, I would like to read the books of my gods, please. I'd like, like to read the rain, the steps of the rain dance my rain god wanted me to do, so I make sure I get it right. And the Assyrians will look at that guy and go, how long did it take you to get up here? Remember, Assyria is still in the middle of nowhere. Oh, it took like three months. And when do you need to do your rain dance by? Oh, we need to do our rain dance in like two or three weeks. You know, I mean, we're cutting it close. But but we'll get the book, we'll get the steps, we'll get out of your out of your way. It's interesting that you came at this exact time. It turns out we're about to go on a three-month vacation. Come back in three months. But but we need to rain dance now, and you're here. You're open. Yeah, no, no. We're not going to go get the book. Uh, Get out. And if you don't get out, we'll call the army, and we'll force you to leave. And we'll just arrest you and execute you. Good luck with your gods. Bye-bye. That is a form of humiliation because you can't even read your own books. You can't even read your own God's books. The gods weren't writing to Assyria. They were writing to you, and you can't read them. The Assyrians are using their power to remind you who's in charge. So what happens? Well, Assyria is destroyed, and you can understand why. Because people don't like Assyria. The people who were conquered by the Assyrians don't like them. But they're not powerful enough to overthrow them. So something has to change. And in 614, nomadic horse peoples show up. And they change the balance of power in the Middle East. The Medes and the Persians. Now we're going to talk about a little bit about both of them. But you have to understand the Medes are the big brother here. The big cousin. And the Persians are like the, the little puppy that's following along going, hey, Spike, hey, hey, Spike, in the Bugs Bunny cartoons, right? You got the big bulldog, raw, raw, raw. That's the Medes. And the Persians are like the little chihuahua being like, hey, Spike, what do you want to do today, Spike? I'm, I'm so glad I'm your little cousin. The Persians are not important. It's the Medes. But the Persians are tagging along. They enter the Middle East, and they're nomads. They're looking for food. And they go... We have come to look for food. Who has the food? You have the food? And all the people in the Middle East go, no, we don't have anything. But the Assyrians do, and we'll help you get it. Now, here's the thing. They're nomadic horse people. They're riding on horses. They are what's called cavalry. Men riding on horseback. And that's new. Not new in history, because nomads have been doing this for about 10,000 years. 
but it's new in warfare in the Middle East. Remember, Babylon has chariots. Assyria has chariots. The Hittite, well, the Hittites are gone. They're obliterated by the Bronze Age collapse. The Egyptians have chariots. Cavalry is better than chariots. Because cavalry can go anywhere. Chariots need, like a car, need flat ground. And so the Medes have this military advantage. But there's not a lot of them. So the Medes alone, even with their Persian little cousins, could not destroy the Assyrian army by themselves. But because the Assyrians were such jerks, everybody revolts. The Hebrews revolt. The Egyptians kind of revolt and stay out of it. The, but Babylon is like Oprah. Babylon, remember, Babylon is, even though it was sacked, it's still the richest trade city in the world. So it's a trade hub. And so it's got money. And so what does it do? It throws money like Oprah. Like, uh, you, get a, you get a revolt. You get a revolt. You get a revolt. Who needs weapons? And they just throw stuff to everybody. Remember, they make stuff. So they have the weapons. They can make the chariots. So they can finance the revolution. The Medes and the Persians are tough guys. No doubt about it. But the, everybody else is like, but the Assyrians are tougher than we are. And here come Babylon be like, I will finance this because I hate them the most. No, I mean, I was about to say nobody hates the Assyrians more than the Babylonians. But let's face it, the 10 lost tribes of Israel are obliterated. They're gone. They're just genocide. So really, the Hebrews have a claim on hating the Assyrians even more because a lot of them don't exist anymore. So there's a massive revolt. And what does this lead to? The Battle of Nineveh. The Assyrians fight and lose and fight and lose and fight and lose and are backed into their capital city. And this is like the Battle of Minas Tirith in Return of the King. If the bad guys are in the city and the good guys are outside of the city wanting to bust in. And what happens is there's a long siege. The, the anti-Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the, the Judeans, the Phoenicians, the Sumerians, they, all bu they burst in through the walls, they break down the walls, they burst in and they murder all of the Assyrians. They obliterate Assyria. Why? Because they hate them and they want to treat the Assyrians how the Assyrians treated them. And this is very important in this class because all slave owners will worry that they will one day be treated the way they treat their slaves. And the Assyrian experience is proof that that is possibly true. So they always worry about losing control of their slaves, which makes slavery even more violent. Because slaveholders will do everything to try to repress their slaves. The Assyrians are destroyed. They're gone. Nineveh is abandoned. It becomes, it becomes a dust ghost town of baying dogs. Like when Xenophon and the Greek army comes marching through with Cyrus, he, he, they run into Nineveh. And like, what giants built this place? It's too big. This isn't a normal city. What ancient monsters of Homer built this? And they're like, well, we don't actually know. The Assyrians actually got lost in history. It was only in the 20th century when, 
when historians were able to finally um, translate Babylonian, Sumerian, and the Assyrian writing, and realized that not only did the Assyrians exist, but they were actually worse than what the Bible says about them. Because the one place that we knew about the Assyrians was in the Old Testament. <coughs> but most people thought they were boogeymen, that they didn't really exist, because there was no other evidence that the Assyrians really existed. Remember, this is the early days of ar archaeology. The 19 in the 19th century, uh, and early 20th century. So there wasn't like, so if it wasn't in the Bible, they didn't really know. And the Assyrians are such awful people in the Old Testament that people were like, they can't really exist like this. It's just a metaphor. The Assyrians are a metaphor for bad guys. It can't. They can't. It can't nobody could be this bad. And then they translated what the Assyrian kings wrote. Like, let's go back to the Great Library. Sennacherib writes, I opened Babylon's treasure houses, their gold, their silver, precious stones of every kind, goods and property without limit, heavy tribute, the king's harem, his courtiers, his officials, his singers, male and female, all of his artisans, as many as there were the, sa the servants of his palace, I brought out, I counted as spoil. In the might of Asher, my lord, which is one of the gods of Assyria, 75 of his strong-walled cities and 420 small cities and their environs, environs, I surrounded, I conquered, I took their spoil, I carried it off. Holy jeez. He sacked 420 cities? He sacked 75 walled cities? Dude, a walled city doesn't fall for through three, four, five months. You either have to break down the walls or if you starve it into submission. Neither one is quick in the ancient world. Dude, Sennacherib is fine. He took everything. He took the people. And that's what they wrote about. And so you can imagine the people in the Middle East hate them. And so what is the result? The result was actually more war. As, as crazy as it is, it was more war. It was war for the next 75 years. Why? One, nobody wanted another Assyria to rise. Nobody wanted one kingdom to run the Middle East anymore. And two, there were four major powers now. When Assyria broke up, the world broke up into its four major power zones. You had Egypt, based on the Nile. We've talked about that. You had Babylon, based on trade and based on Mesopotamia, the rivers, right? Boom. You have a new place, Media, Persia, what we now would call Iran, the importance of that is it's it's a plateau, it's good horse country, and it's connected to the Central Asian nomads who you can hire as mercenaries, and it's connected to India, who you can now trade with. And then the fourth is the old Hittites, what's called Lydia, Asia Minor, the Turks. And if you look at this map, you have Asia Minor, you have Mesopotamia, you have Egypt, and you have the Iranian plateau. That is essentially the power dynamic in the modern Middle East. This will essentially be every time we talk about the Middle East, or for, the, for those of you who don't like the Anglo-centric um, Middle East, Southwest Asia, right? In Southwest Asia, you're talking about these four places, Turkey, Egypt, Iran, Iraq. 
You're going to talk about these four places over and over and over and over again. And so they have a giant war. Lydia is in Asia Minor. Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar II, the great conqueror who will destroy Jerusalem. Egypt and the Medes. And you'll have war for the next 75 years. And what does that lead to? It actually leads to the thing they wanted to avoid. One super empire. And we'll talk about that next. Thank you.